Rome once fell, and all great civilizations do. Is America falling? Could we be doing more? Some say it's because we have stopped focusing on learning and understanding what it means to be a good citizen. That's what this podcast is all about. If civics is dead, what happens next? Welcome to Civics is Dead. I'm Cindy Schwartz. Such an honor to have in the house today for our fifth episode of season two, Boots on the Ground, 2020 New York Teacher of the Year, Rachel Murat. A teacher for 24 years, Rachel has taught social studies for most of those 24 years at Maine Endwell High School, a high school in upstate New York, just west of Binghamton. A former student, Lauren Bailey, once credited Mrs. Murat for being, quote, directly responsible for her interest in public service as she serves as a climate policy director today for the Tri-State Transportation Campaign, a nonprofit that advocates for sustainable transit options in the New York City area. Another former student describes Ms. Murat as a teacher that, quote, just makes everything so welcoming and so warm, a teacher who has a classroom in the school where you can come to and be safe. Ms. Murat has taught numerous history and government classes and developed Maine and Wells' first digital citizenship course. In 2005, she was also responsible for developing a ninth-grade mentoring program to help students emotionally, socially, and academically transition into high school from middle school. Outside of the classroom, Ms. Murat serves as founder and president of Meals, M-E-A-L-S, a food pantry through which her district has provided and continues to provide food and other essential items to hundreds of families. And finally, our celebrated guest is dedicated to promoting civics education by encouraging her students to reach out into the community and the nation at large by participating in the democratic process, helping others and bringing kindness and understanding to all they do. Rachel, we are thrilled that you are able to be with us today. And as I always start my classes with teaching, I'm going to ask you the most important question of the day. How are you and how was your day at school? I'm well. Thank you very much for uh, this opportunity to speak with your audience. I very much appreciate it. Um, I had a great day at school. Um, The kids were um, energetic. They were excited. The sun was out. We laughed a lot today. So we had a great day. That is so wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. Why don't we just dive into your bio so we can uh, have our audience learn a little bit about you personally. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what motivated you to enter the field of education, and um, why you chose teaching secondary education as opposed to elementary and middle school education. Well, I originally only knew uh, one thing when I went to college, and that was that I did not want to be a teacher. And the reason for that was because of the fact that my dad was a teacher. There were other educators in my life and in my family. And I thought, you know, I needed to do something different to be able to distinguish myself. So I was thinking, you know, pre-law, that sounded like a pretty cool job. So um, I was sitting with my advisor and he said that there were more people in law school than there were practicing lawyers. And I really would just be a number And um, that didn't really sound all that exciting to me. And so I kind of, you know, wove my way around the different kinds of, you know, classes at Ohio University and figured out, you know, what I didn't want to do. And then 
beginning of my junior year, my dad called and said, you kind of need to pick a major. I knew that I always liked social studies classes. My dad is a Civil War buff. We always got to visit the monuments, which I didn't necessarily appreciate as a kid, but I definitely do as an adult. And I just kind of decided that that was what I wanted to do. And once I joined the College of Education at Ohio University, I found myself the philanthropy chair for um, our education fraternity, and I really have not looked back since then. I chose high school education uh, because I, I don't know, like I just, I guess, never considered elementary or middle school. I just kind of fell naturally into high school. It sounds like you have made the right decision, for sure. I noticed that you get to school generally before the sun rises. Is that true? Um, It's about four o'clock in the morning. So yes. (laughs) Let me ask you this then. If you're getting there so, so early, walk us through a typical day for you. Once you get there early in the morning, what's your day like at uh, the high school where you work? Well, there aren't necessarily like a standard operating procedure in the morning for me, but um, the first thing I do is I shut the alarm off to the building and then I come in and I check in the pantry if there is something that needs to get done for this week's deliveries. Um, And then I go down to my classroom and I get my different materials and resources ready for the five or six classes that I teach every day. Um, I have five preps, so that takes me a little bit longer in the morning. One of them is an AP class. I also am trying to get as much differentiation in the materials, access to the resources in different ways, making sure that my room is set up in a you know an inviting way, uh, making sure my snacks are replenished for the kids, and you know just getting. I have um, a display device on all four of my walls, so I want to make sure that those are all set up, ready to go. Then I'm also making sure that everything's taken care of for Key Club, you know, for the mentoring program, for the class of 2021, for which I'm an advisor as well, and then just running around, you know, generally doing other errands in the morning. Well, if you have five preps, Rachel, and that I did not know before we spoke today, then you are teaching five separate subjects in social studies. Am I correct? Yes. Can you tell our audience what those five preps are? Because that's not usual. It's usual to have five classes in New York for high school uh, as a teacher myself, but you have five separate preps. So let's tell our audience what those are. So I have um, participation in government. Then I have a co-taught U.S. history class that I am privileged to have a special ed teacher with me as we work with our special ed population in that class. Uh, I teach AP government and politics. I teach a G Suite course, which is like a the Google version if you were to take a Microsoft Office course where my kids take the Google certification at the end so they're Google certified and they're able to put that on their college resume and on their work resumes. I also teach digital leadership and then I have an on-level U.S. history class. A busy day. When do you generally get home? Um, well, last night I got home at 8.30. <laughs> so... Sometime between 6 and 8.30 is usually when I get home. Very, very long day. Beautiful work, though, you're doing. So I'm going to ask you two questions. One is, what are the challenges? Having five preps certainly, I'm sure, is one. But in your own words, what are the challenges of your day and what are the joys? And, of course, they can go together. Well, the joys of my job, 110%, are the kids. For example, I sat down today with a couple kids. I always have kids in my room for their free periods, or if I have class and they need a place to be, I always have extra kids in my room. And um, eighth period, uh, every other day I have a prep period. And so 
I always have kids in there. And today we just got talking about my trip to Google for the induction of uh, the National Teacher of the Year program. And then also the kids had just gotten back from Costa Rica. So we got to share lots of laughs and our experiences. And it was just an amazing period to be able to just sit down and talk with the kids that were in my room. And that's really the joy of my day is, you know, greeting the kids when they get there. We have walk-in songs. We sit out, we were out in the hallway fist bumping on the way into class. So those are the joys. Uh, the challenges, I think, are just sometimes I think maybe that there are state regulations that I don't necessarily think are either still working for us or, you know, are in the best interest sometimes of the populations that we're seeing these days. And so although that's not like a obstacle, it just makes it, you know, life a little bit more difficult, but you just, you got to do what you got to do. And you want to make sure that you have an environment where all of your kids can be successful, regardless of whatever perceived challenge they have. I think that's a challenge, but it's also a joy, I think, to be able to meet the kids where they are and help them feel successful, be successful, feel proud of who they are, we always joke that I'm going to write a book called Life Lessons with Marat because, uh, like, that's really my goal in life is that they leave me better human beings than they were when they got here, and the content comes second. So I'm a big believer in Maslow Before Bloom, and I think just getting the kids excited and them knowing that I'm excited to see them, and I miss them when they're gone. So if they're absent, they come on, I always tell them that I miss them. And they know that it's genuine, that I actually do miss them. Yes, that is extremely clear. And you see the child, the student, as a whole person. And you bring a, a tremendous humanity to your work. I can, I can hear that. Just briefly, is there one state regulation in particular that you find the most challenging to meet or to handle in the classroom? I know that we're working on capstone projects, and I think that that's a great step forward for us. Um, I think we've kind of outgrown the one standardized test at the end, because sometimes I'm reminded of that cartoon where they ask a fish to climb a tree. And so I think that having alternative assessments or kids showing us what they know in a way that is authentic and actually shows me what they know, I think would be a, a better step in the right direction. So I think we're getting there. I just think that, you know, it's a work in progress. Absolutely. Just to shift for a moment to the environment of your room, which I think is so important, I noticed on some videos of you and your classroom that you have a physical setup in your classroom that is really quite homey. I noticed that you have lamps and you have plants. Uh, was it always that way for you? And has there ever been any blowback on that from administration? Uh, no. I, we have very supportive administration here. Um, I haven't always had flexible seating. I actually got flexible seating. It arrived on Election Day of 2016. So we had planned to have an election night party in my room for my any of the kids that wanted to show up, plus my AP Gov kids. So I had kids from previous years, kids that I didn't necessarily know that well, and we all showed up and they just got really excited because all of a sudden I had this new furniture. So that was fun for them. But I've always had um, it be a space that I like to be in because I spend so much time in my room. And I think that it's important that the kids see my personality come out and that I take the care to decorate my room in a way that makes it feel so homey. I haven't always had the, like, what you would call a house lamp. I haven't always had those in my room. I've probably had those only for maybe the last 10 years or so. But definitely, uh, there's pictures in there that I took. If you were to check out my Instagram, there's two things on my Instagram, school and sunsets, because sunsets are kind of my thing. And so I really love to share that with the kids. So I think it's just important. And I have lots of painted canvases that have motivational pictures on it. I have, or excuse me, motivational quotes. 
I have paintings that the kids have done on my one wall. I also have a joy corner where I have pictures of all of my former students who have given me their senior pictures up there. And it's a great problem to have that I keep running out of space. So I'm very blessed to have the kids in my life that I have in my life. That's wonderful. I love that joy wall. It's it's fabulous. So let me ask you about your teaching methodology. How would you characterize your methods of teaching? And I wonder if your approach to teaching has changed at all throughout the years, depending on testing years, et cetera. So how, how would you define or characterize your teaching methodology? I always teach, like I've always had testing years because I've always taught a regents exam, whether it be global studies or U.S. history, amongst the other classes that I teach, plus obviously the AP classes have a test. But so that's not my focus. My focus is getting to know the kids, developing a relationship, and then my methodology goes from there. And so the kids need to know that I care about them as people before I care about them as learners. And once you establish that relationship, then those kids will work harder for you than they do, you know, that they even thought was possible, just because they know that you are invested in them as a person. And I seek out student feedback um, on all the things that we do. There's a reflection part where they can reflect on, you know, their output, their effort, their problem solving, what they'd like to do going forward to make it a better situation next time to improve upon. And then also, how can I make things better? So based on that, I'm constantly changing what I'm doing. So for example, I'm a big user of HyperDocs. And last year, the kids all wanted digital resources. They wanted to be able to watch videos. They wanted to be able to seek out different things online and that type of thing. And this year's kids didn't want to do that. So I'm, you know, it's the same, obviously it's the same content, but I'm redesigning it based on what the kids have told me they want to do, what works for them, what they enjoy more. And I think that it's important that they see that I value their opinion and I'm not just asking for it and then completely ignoring it. Absolutely. It uh, enables the student to feel empowered and to feel, you know, a part of your community. It's wonderful. As the founder of the first digital citizenship course at your school, It appeared clear to me that the teaching of civics and American government is something that you are very passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit about this digital citizenship course and at what age can students partake in it and what is the curriculum? So I started this class back in, I think it was 2013. And at the time, there was like, I had a cart. So I was one to one in my classroom. Um, I'm kind of a guinea pig for the new technology, which is a win win because I get to be an early adopter of things and the district gets to find out what works and doesn't work early on. And so I was really more tuned into what the kids were doing digitally than maybe other classrooms that did not have access to devices at that time. And so I really, this is when the kids really started to get on Twitter, which they're not really on anymore. But I was noticing, you know, what they were doing on social media. And I was thinking to myself, hang on a second. So their parents are definitely not digital natives. And their parents are also trying to figure out this land called social media. And uh, since I'm friends with a lot of their parents, because I had a lot of their parents in class as a student, I was noticing that they also weren't necessarily modeling the behavior that we need to have on social media. And so I kind of thought, well, how can we make sure that there's not a disconnect between the citizenship that you have in real life? How do you treat somebody when you are face-to-face versus when you are online? Because I really, there's not a disconnect. There's, you are a kind person online and offline, and your behavior should not differ based on that. So I really just kind of designed a class of how can we start to build our social brand? How can we use the internet as a positive place 
and space for us to create things so that when people look at us online, they see that we're really good human beings, not that we, you know, aren't using social media appropriately. So one of the things that we came to do in my digital citizenship class, which has morphed into a digital leadership class, but I'll get to that in a second, was the fact that we were concerned about the the number of people, of employers who are Googling potential employees and finding them online for the first time. And so in my digital citizenship class, um, I have extension activities where the kids can choose any range of things and they can also you know, ask me, can they, can we propose something to do? And the kids wanted to, they didn't, they were so used to seeing the message of, you know, block block and ban, you know, just shut it down. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And they were like, where's the message of this would be a great way to do this. Or how about we do this? And so they were like, well, how can we, can we make a movie? And, you know, I was like, sure. So out of that uh, was born Positively Social which is about a 12-minute documentary. And it starts off and it asks the question of, if somebody found you online and that's how they met you for the first time, what would they think of you? So that was really kind of the guiding question for that video. And it's been shown all around the world. And it's free for anybody to use. And I think it's a great resource because it really does get people thinking about it. And the number of people that have come to me and said, you know, we Googled ourselves for the first time and I just never realized what was out there. And, you know, that's what you want to be paying attention to because, you know, according to monster.com, 77% of employers are Googling their potential employees prior to even, you know, making a phone call with that. So I think it's important that the kids realize that that is a, that can be a very powerfully positive space and doesn't have to be that negative space. Fast forward probably four, no, five years. So 2018, 2019, we started to get a lot more devices into the building. And then last year, we went one-to-one. And we did a lot of training on digital citizenship for our staff members. The middle school, the elementary schools have all been using a common language about digital citizenship. And I really realized that my dream came true where I didn't have to teach this class in a silo anymore. And it's kind of everybody's job to be having these discussions because whether you're a parent or an educator or an administrator or whatever role you have, I think it's important that you are having those discussions, you know, with everybody about, okay, this is the proper use of a device. This is, you know, you wouldn't have done that in person. So why would we do that online type of a thing? And so now it's more of a, a digital leadership class. So for example, We just started a project today to promote a cause, whatever cause the kids want from the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals, because I think it's important that they realize that, you know, these are goals that the United Nations has. These are things that not everybody else has. Um, I think it's a way to build empathy, to learn, to engage. And I think it's important that if we're going to be global citizens, that we are aware of what's going on outside of our you know, close-knit community. Sounds like an amazing program. So at what age can students partake in this? Is it for all students from grades, you know, 9 through 12? We have digital citizenship courses K through 12 now, um, but my digital leadership class in the high school is open 9-12. Awesome. So one area, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the 2018 Brown Report on Education, which is pretty comprehensive look at what schools are doing throughout the country in public schools. And it says that districts, even private schools actually it covers, says that districts, schools, um, teachers are, are remiss 
in one particular area. And that is in allowing students to partake in activities that allow kids to really live and understand how democracy works. In looking at some of the work you do, it appears that you are very interested in having students be far more active and uh, participatory members of our democratic system. How specifically, since this is a show on civics education, how specifically do you get your kids involved besides the digital citizenship program? I mean, in terms of American government, how do you specifically get your kids involved in the democratic process and prepare them to be citizens, active citizens in this country? Well, first of all, it starts with getting to know the kids. So once you know the kids, you know what they're interested in. So you can kind of tailor your discussions with them, you know, based on, you know, who's sitting in front of you. But I also think it's important that our elected officials come in and spend some time with the kids because I want the kids to see that our elected officials are approachable, that they work for us, and that they're human beings just like us. And so I always have our state senator, Fred Akshar, come in. I have our assemblywoman, Donna Lopardo, come in. I have our county executive, Jason Garner, come in. I also have the town of union supervisor, Rick Matteris, come in. And we're doing a Skype call with our congressman, Anthony Brindisi. So I think it's important to do that. I also think it's important that, like, our superintendent comes up and talks to my seniors, because the juniors aren't old enough to vote yet, um, two days before the school budget and just lays out the facts, like the same thing that he does at the budget board of education meeting to inform the public about what everything is. And so that the kids can make a, a better informed decision, which way they want to vote. You know, if we have any initiatives or bonds or, you know, the school board type thing, although he doesn't get into the school board elections at all. So I think bringing that access in, uh, we also write letters to the editor We do emails and letters to our elected officials, and we just talk. I mean, we talk about what's going on in the news. We talk about, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? There's not been a shortage of government activities in the last couple of years to talk about. And so I think that them seeing it more in the news, I think the, you know, their parents having more discussions at home has led to more discussions at school. But again, I think it's important that if a kid has a question, you know, you honor the fact that they have a question. And I also think it's really important that as as an educator that I play devil's advocate on both sides so the kids have no idea what my politics are. And it's funny because we always do a vote at the end of the year and it's almost always 50-50 as to whether I you know, and I would vote one way or the other. And I never tell them how I'm registered, how I vote, who I vote for, or anything like that, because I think it's important that everybody feels like their opinion matters, even if it might be different than mine. And it's funny because I'll have a kid that's like, you know, I thought I had your politics pegged. And then you said something completely opposite the other day. And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm always playing devil's advocate on both sides. So I think that helps them develop their sense of who they are politically. We also do um, an eye side with quiz online to see, like, you know, and we also do a um, political compass test. But we also talk about, you know, the danger of a single story. If you label somebody a Democrat or if you label somebody a Republican, that doesn't pigeonhole them. And so, you know, talking about whether for some kids and people, it's definitely more important to be a party line voter. And for other kids and some parents, it's more important to be you know, um, a split ticket voter who looks at the person and not the party. And so, you know, presenting both of those options, talking about third party candidates, you know, I basically just how can I get them more interested in doing it and being involved in politics? 
Excellent. And in the classroom, do you often do mock trials? Do you have debates? Do you have roundtable discussions? Are you engaged in all of that too in the room? So we have a mock trial club, and I did actually used to be the advisor for that. Um, I just unfortunately didn't have time anymore. We do um, discussions almost every single day about different topics that we are learning about. We do some Socratic seminars. We have they want to ask questions or I want to ask questions. It's not necessarily like a free-for-all. It's just like based on what they need in front of me. Um, We do some debates. We write letters, all those types of things. Okay, fabulous. How connected are you, Rachel, with uh, social studies education at the elementary school level? And are you aware of uh, any marginalization of social studies at that level? Because um, the research is showing that uh, social studies is not being taught at the elementary level the way it had been in the past, and that STEM or STEAM has certainly um, taken over in terms of the earlier grades. Uh, You have any connection with the teaching of social studies at the uh, younger level? I have connection in the sense that I have colleagues who I'm, you know, friends with and have professional relationships with, and we have, you know, some K-12 discussions about, you know, what it is that we're teaching and, you know, how can one level help another level and, you know, those types of things. But, I mean, I think it's important that, for example, in stressing, you know, STEM curriculum that, you know, for example, we're getting more girls involved in that. And I also like the fact that we've added the A back into that. So I don't necessarily think that in New York State that we are as marginalized in social studies as we are maybe in some other states just because of the requirements that we still do have. But I think that part of the thing that we need to address, one of the things, excuse me, that we should address is also, you know, the discussions that are and are not happening at home anymore. Because I think I was reading a study the other day that like, on average, parents have eight minutes of conversation with their kids now. And I don't know the source of what I just, you know, stated, because I I just remember reading it the other day. And I thought to myself, well, that's completely different than when I was growing up. Because when I was growing up, we'd sit around the kitchen table and, you know, for dinner, and we'd talk about what the homework situation was. Like, that was the first question out of my dad's mouth every single day was the homework situation. And then we'd sit and talk about politics. Um, I always tell the story to the kids about the fact that in my house, you could only go trick-or-treating until sixth grade. And then in sixth grade, my dad was going to go to a political rally and ask me if I wanted to go to the political rally or if I wanted to go trick-or-treating. And I asked the kids what they think I chose. And they were like, oh, you probably chose the political rally. (laughs) I did choose the political rally as a sixth grader. So, I mean, I think the discussions and the amount of time parents spend talking with kids about things has changed. And I think that's also leading to the marginalization, I think, of maybe some history. Um, I understand that parents, you know, are tired of the partisanship that we have in politics right now. And so, you know, they're deciding to check out But I think that, you know, we need to try to get parents re-engaged in that situation as well. Thank you for that. Uh, I have a question to ask you that uh, shifts us once again. Do you see any visible signs of stress in your students that might explain their reactions to testing, to an increase in AP requirements in the school that I taught in, the way one entered AP classes was it was a self-selection process. In the past, we had had teachers make recommendations, but now it's self-selected, and there is a push to put most students 
into AP. So it's a two-sided question for me. One is, is there any push to take certain classes like AP in your school? And uh, if not, do you see visible signs of stress in your students from any other kind of testing or stresses that are coming from school in general? So in our school, you can take an AP if you want, but you do not have to take AP classes. So, I mean, they're there for the taking. Several of them, including my AP Gov class, are open to anybody who wants to take them as long as you're a senior. And so that's not something, I mean, you could never have taken an AP class and you're welcome to come in. You know, you might not be a person that has been successful in the past in social studies and you're still welcome to take my class. Because I think my class, for example, is about becoming a better citizen in our country and being more knowledgeable about all the things that are going to happen to you, you know, once adulting starts. But I, I can tell you that the level of stress and anxiety in our kids' lives has, I've never seen the level of stress and anxiety in our kids that I am seeing now. But I don't think that the sole cause of it is testing. I think that it is a whole spectrum of things. I think it is too much social media or on-the-line time, less personalizing time, less face-to-face discussion time, less facing our emotions, more like diving into, you know, Netflix or something that's available right there instead of dealing with your emotions. I think it's the stress in, you know, what they are seeing earlier in life. I also think that I'm seeing a lot of kids that are very hesitant about what it means when you turn 18 in the sense that they have this notion in their minds that you turn 18 and all of a sudden you're supposed to be like graced with this knowledge of what your career path is going to be. And it's going to be this straight paved, you know, road that's never going to have any challenges or hurdles in it. And so that's why I think it's important that every kid who comes back to visit me. So I, you know, I have kids come back to visit me all the time, but I make sure that they talk to my students about, okay, so what's your experience in college? What's your experience in the workplace? You know, oh, you switched colleges? Like, what's that experience? You decided to go into the trades, you went to the military, you went to the right to the workforce, you know, and I also share my story of the fact that, you know, I am the New York State Teacher of the Year that almost wasn't a teacher. So I think it's important that we're sharing those stories with kids and that it's okay not to go to college and it's okay if you want to go to the workforce and it's okay if you want to go to college. And, you know, those types of things I think are causing levels of anxiety that I've not seen before. Interesting. So it's multi-tiered, so to speak, the stress. But you are seeing that. I, I have seen that as well. Levels that I have never seen before in my almost 30 years of teaching also. So are you comfortable in general with how teachers are trained for their work in the classroom? If not, can you offer any suggestions about how teachers, new teachers should be trained? Well, based on the number of teachers who are leaving our profession after five years, I would have to say that they are not being trained, you know, in a way that will help them develop the skills and the resilience to stay in the teaching field. But I also think that, you know, in a lot of places, teachers are not respected as professionals. And I think that the fact that, you know, they are having secondhand trauma and they are working ungodly amounts of hours for very small wages, um, I think is also problematic. So I do have a good working relationship with Binghamton University, as well as a couple of our surrounding colleges that have teacher schools. And I always have several of them in my classroom, you know, during the semester. 
for extended periods of time. And so I think that one of the things that we need to be talking about with our future educators is how important their job is and that the kids need them um, in the sense that this isn't just a job that you're going to and you work in a vacuum. These kids need you and we need you because there aren't going to be enough teachers once my generation of teachers starts to retire. I think that we also need to make sure that our new teachers are supported because I think sometimes we throw in, like I've heard horror stories of brand new teachers getting three AP classes, different AP classes to teach, and they don't have the training necessarily. And we're just not making good decisions necessarily that are in the best interest of cultivating a new teacher and bringing them, you know, into the profession so that they can stay. I think the fact that a lot of teachers are left to buy their own school supplies does not help the situation either. And so I think in colleges, we need to also be talking about, you know, the use of purposeful educational technology, being aware of social emotional issues, you know, all of the different kinds of ways that you can meet your learners where you are. I don't think there's one simple way to fix that problem because I think there's some systemic problems that are not college-based. They're actually school-based in the sense that the teachers that are coming into the schools aren't necessarily being supported the way that they need to be. That all makes sense to me, and I, I agree with really everything that you've said there. If you had to state that there was one leading challenge facing the teaching of social studies today, what might you say to that? What's the leading challenge that social studies educators and social studies education faces today across the country? So I can only kind of talk about it from my perspective in what I teach because that's kind of what my world is. But I can tell you that the lack of adults having the, the ability to have um, civil conversations uh, where we don't necessarily agree with the other people in the room, I think, is having a huge effect on kids' interest in social studies, interest in politics, interest in history, um, and the fact that we have, it's almost, I feel like sometimes as adults, based on my conversations with many adults in my life outside of school, that we haven't really been honing our critical thinking skills. And so, I think kids are kind of picking up on, well, I saw this online and it did this and it did that. And I was like, well, did you fact check it? Did you think there's no way that's actually true? Let me look it up. So I think the combination of so much information being available to us all the time just becomes noise. I think the fact that the adults uh, in the world right now are not having a great modeling ability on civil discourse which is causing a lot of adults to kind of back away from that. And when you back away from that, you also back away from wanting to go to Washington, you know, to see all of the amazing monuments that are down there. We're not necessarily taking kids to historical sites anymore. We're going to the beach or, you know, there's an increasing number of families that, I mean, they don't have the money to go anywhere. And so that's not even an option. And so I think that all of that combined with some states making decisions that social studies is not a priority is kind of snowballing into all of these. And I do find it ironic that elected officials choose to get social studies out of schools when that's what probably got them interested in becoming an elected official in the first place. 
Excellent point. And finally, before we uh, end for today, and it's been such a joy to have you, I am totally psyched that you took your students to two inaugurations. Yes, and we already planned the one to go to 2021. That is awesome. What a fabulous experience. You went to uh, the inauguration uh, in 2009, and you went to 2017. Yep, and then I also take the kids to... um, Albany to the State of the State Address every uh, January, and we also had, and I was really geeking out about this because in December of 2016, we got to go to Albany and watch the Electoral College, the electors cast their ballots, and that was like, it was so, I was geeking out about that. It was just so amazing. So I think, again, exposing kids and having those opportunities, you know, that's what's going to help get them engaged in, you know, social studies and history and politics. Completely agree. And on that note, I would like to thank you, Rachel, for joining us today on Civics is Dead. Your passion is clearly contagious. Your insights are so valuable. And your commitment to participatory democracy in and outside your classroom is inspiring. We wish you continued success in your teaching career. Your students are so very fortunate to have you as their teacher. Well, thank you very much. I uh, have enjoyed our talk, and I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Be sure to subscribe to Civics is Dead on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Follow us on Twitter at Civics is Dead, and please visit wcwp.org slash civics is dead. I wish you a beautiful day and great peace in your life. <laughs>